Well, good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? <clears throat> Sleepy, I hear you. Yes, that's a good one. I think uh, that may describe many of our students this morning from our student ministry. They had a late night yesterday evening coming back from Rock the Universe at Universal Studios. I hear they had a great time, but if you happen to be sitting by one of those students now and you see them begin to doze off, uh, you have the permission of the pulpit to nudge them uh, in the arm or the shoulder to get them back awake and get their attention again. But anyway, I heard they had a great time. It's good to see so many of them uh, back after what was a late night, quick turnaround in the early morning to be back at church. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 today. We are back in our study that is appropriately called Gospel. Now, I don't know if you remember this study or not, but we actually uh, started this study well before Christmas. Um, we were walking through the book of Mark or the Gospel of Mark together and what it is that he teaches us about the good news of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do is now that we're past Christmas, past the Advent, and we are now into the new year, kind of set the tone for where we want to be as a church. We're going to pick back up in this study this morning and hopefully finish out the book from there. So uh, before we dive into Mark chapter 9, I do want to ask you uh, this question, and I want you to think about this question as we walk through these verses together. And the question is this, what does it mean to be great? You see, for our society, this is actually an important question. You see, the truth is we all want to be remembered for something. And not just for anything, we want to be remembered for something amazing, perhaps something that we accomplished, something that we did, or we want to be remembered as that person who could walk down the road and people quickly recognize and realize who they are. You see, we want to know that in our lives we did something great, and therefore we are now seen as great in the eyes of those that we come across. Now, this is exactly why many of us like to mimic our favorite athletes or celebrities. This is many of the reasons why we tend to follow our favorite uh, politicians or celebrities on social media or even the people that we see on social media and we look at their lives and say, that is a life I want to have because they are clearly doing something and they are doing something well with their life. You see, the reality is we desire to have a small portion of that life for ourselves. But here's the problem. When we begin to compare our lives to others, then we tend to begin to define the word great as it is defined by the world. In fact, I would argue that if we are not careful in defining greatness, then this seeking to be great will ultimately lead us to become a selfish, addictive personality people. And the reality is when we get to that point, the only way to be set free is by the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, a fellow pastor said it best on social media of all places when he said these words, the gospel frees us from our addiction to ourselves. You see, one of the things we need to quickly realize is as believers in Christ, there was once upon a time where we were not Christians. There was once upon a time where we were not believers in Christ. So if I could take you back to that moment before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, I would want you to look at your own lives in that moment and examine for yourself what your life looked like before Jesus Christ. 
You see, before Christ, we were addicted to ourselves. We were intoxicated with our desires. We were not interested in serving others. Rather, we were the ones who wanted, demanded, and even expected to be served. We knew that without a doubt that the way to greatness in that moment before Christ was not found in obedience to someone else. But here's the reality if you're a Christian in this room. You see, everything changes when we encounter Jesus Christ. Everything changes when we encounter Jesus of the Bible. You see, Jesus, through this text in Mark, is about to shift the focus from being selfish to being selfless. And so Jesus is now about to shed light on a new path that leads to greatness. And not just greatness in the terms of society standards, but greatness as it is defined through the lens of God. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin reading in verse 30. And once you have found your place in the Word, if you can, you're able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now, this is the gospel of Mark, the good news of Jesus Christ, according to Mark, written in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. Mark writes, And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worms, uh, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, 
how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this morning. And Lord, we ask and pray that as we've already experienced in worship, Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for what it is that you have for us this morning according to your word. Father, as we begin to unpack this passage, may you and you alone be glorified. So, Lord, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our eyes and our ears for your truth. And God, we pray that you and you alone would be glorified as we worship you in the study of your word today. Father, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for providing a place for us to gather. And now, Father, we ask and pray that you and you alone would be glorified. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for loving us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, if I could for a moment, I want to set the scene for you and what's going on in these verses. We actually find ourselves in the middle of what has been called Jesus's great discipleship discourse. Now, this discourse itself actually starts back in Mark chapter 8 and goes all the way to the end of Mark chapter 10. Now, Jesus, in knowing how the world views greatness, is now turning the value system of the world upside down. So his teaching here would have been mind-blowing for those who were listening. That's why we read the phrase of the disciples that they did not understand. You see, like the apostles' world, our world lives by the mantra that everything is about me. And so Jesus comes along, he turns the world upside down, and ultimately what we see him do is he dies in order to free us from such sin and such slavery. He freed us to be able to serve. So you see, the road or the path to true greatness is one that Jesus Christ himself has walked well before us. So in our text today, we will see four truths to finding greatness. Now that first truth can be found in verses 30 through 32, which is where we need to realize that we need to be obedient to the will of God. Now, in verses 30 through 32, Jesus and the 12 have now passed through northeast Galilee and are now heading south to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' heart and mind by this point were already clearly set on obeying the will of God the Father. He knew what was coming. He knew what was at stake. And nothing was going to stop Jesus from fulfilling his divinely ordained call. Yet on his way, it is Jesus who still takes the time to continue to teach the disciples because they still had much to learn. So we look at verses 30 through 31. We see here that Jesus wants to keep his movements secret. This is why Mark records for us that Jesus said, or excuse me, he says this, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Now, Jesus was teaching them that he was going to be handed over to men who would kill him, and then in three days, he would rise again. Now, this was actually the second time Jesus would predict his death. 
We see it in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. We see it in our current passage today. You're going to see it again in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Now, Jesus' ultimate goal in sharing this message with the disciples was to prepare them for what was coming. In fact, when you read Jesus' words here, he uses a word like betrayed or delivered. Now, when you read this in its original language, we have the word parditatai, which actually references the father delivering up his son. In other words, this is Jesus' point in telling the disciples what would happen to him. He was sharing with them that God would purposely kill his son in order that he would not kill us. To put it simply, Jesus is telling the apostles, the way to the crown is by way of the cross. You see, it's because of what Jesus did. It's because of his faithful obedience to the will of God. Salvation is now ours by his suffering. Now we get to verse 32, and clearly the disciples do not understand what is happening, nor do they understand what is going to, be, going to happen. Now, to be fair to the apostles here, we now know what it is that they did not know to be true. In fact, I'm quite confident that many of us in here have probably read through the Gospel of Mark. I would imagine that many of us have read through the Gospel of Matthew and Luke and John. So we now know how this story is going to end. However, put yourselves in the shoes for the, of the apostles for this moment. You see, none of them understood what Jesus was talking about. In fact, what it was that Jesus was teaching them wouldn't even make sense to them until after the resurrection. You see, they did not understand that the glorious Son of Man, as prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, would also become the suffering servant, as prophesied in Isaiah 53. The disciples didn't understand this, and yet they were too afraid to ask. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, knowing the outcome, knowing the end of the story, we should understand what it is that Jesus is talking about here. And if we don't understand, then we should have no fear in asking because we ultimately know how this story is going to end. What Jesus says is going to happen happens, and then just as he said he would rise again on the third day, he did exactly that. You see, here's what we can learn in these verses. When Christ speaks, we need to listen. When we open the word of God, we should pay attention. When we begin to explore the will of God for our lives, then we should be obedient to that call because it is God's will that is always perfect. The second truth we see from our text today is this, is that we as believers in Christ are called to serve others. Now we see this in verses 33 through 37. Now this, is, this passage here is actually similar to what we discussed last week when we said that we wanted to be a church that faithfully loved others boldly. Now, the disciples at this point have now arrived in Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee. Now, this would actually be Jesus' last visit to this area. And so he uses this time again to instruct the 12 apostles privately. Now, notice this. 
In spite of Jesus' teachings, the twelve still aspire to be sovereign kings and not humble servants. You see, the concept of serving others out of an overflow of gospel gratitude has not sunk in for the twelve yet. It's just as David Brainerd says, the, the famous missionary, he said, it is sweet to be nothing and less than nothing that Christ may be in all, or excuse me, that Christ may be all in all. So when we look at verses 33 through 34, Jesus now confronts the 12 to ask them what it is that they were talking about. We know that in verse 34, they were arguing with one another. Now, this is actually important for us to notice because Jews during Jesus' day, it was important to know where you ranked in society. Excuse me. In fact, recognition and rank was important to all of Jewish society. You wanted to be known for something or known as someone important in the community. And here's the reality. Not much has changed for us today. You see, so many people walk around our society today wanting to be known. So many people walk around in our society today wanting to be important. There are many people, Christians included, who want to step out of their churches, walk down the road, enter a restaurant, and they want everyone to know exactly who they are. In fact, I would argue that there are several pastors, several popular pastors, who take pride in that notion of being able to walk out and people know who they are. In fact, I've met several pastors along the way who love it when people come to them and say, I love you, I love your teaching, I love what you're doing, I love how you speak, I love what it is you're sharing. Notice it's all about the pastor, not about Jesus, and then this is what they say to him. Could you sign my Bible? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, that's borderline heresy. There is only one name in the Bible that deserves any recognition, and it's Jesus Christ. So let me go ahead and put this out there for you in case you missed it. Don't come ask me to sign your Bible. My answer is no. Okay? I'll put a scripture in there for you to read. In fact, I may even put James chapter 4, verse 6 in there. It says this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, it would be wise of us at this point to check our pride at the door and humble ourselves, knowing that when we come to church, when we come to gather with the body of believers, when we come for worship, we come knowing that only one name deserves all the recognition, and his name is Jesus. He alone deserves all glory. Now we get to verse 35, and notice what happens here. With pride comes the desire for position. Now Jesus, knowing that there is a dispute happening, then teaches the twelve this. He says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You see, Jesus here is not condoning greatness. Rather, what he is doing is he is redefining what greatness is and what greatness should be. In fact, he says to them, be great in the things that matter to God. In other words, he is saying to us that the only way to find real, lasting happiness, the only way to find real, lasting joy is to faithfully serve someone according to the will and glory of God. Not because you you have to, but because you 
get to. And because you get to, you now want to because you realize what it is that Jesus has done for you. You see, the reality is when we come to church, we should aspire to be the waiters of the tables. When we come to church, we should desire not just to simply be pew sitters or worshipers on a Sunday morning. We should desire to be humble servants who are even willing to wash other people's feet. You see, the reality is as a servant of Jesus Christ, being willing to serve others, the work is not glorious in the eyes of man, but the work is great in the eyes of God. You see, serving others is a posture or a position worthy of eternity with Jesus Christ. Now we get into verse 36 and 37. Here we see Jesus using the example of a child to illustrate what it means to be a servant of all. Here we see a little child during Jesus' day coming to Jesus, and, and we learn that as a child growing up in Jesus' day, as a Jew, this would have been an excellent example of what it means to serve the last or the least of these. And so Jesus startles the disciples by saying that if you receive one like this, one of the least of these, on my behalf, then you receive me. And if you receive me, then you receive the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus effectively says that we should treat well and serve well those who have no standing in this world. In other words, Jesus is teaching us that finding the path to greatness is a call to die to self. Finding the path to greatness is a call to serve others. Finding the path to greatness as defined by Christ is caring for those in need and to receive them all in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves as believers, are we receiving others with grace? Are we receiving them in the name of Jesus Christ? When we come to church, do we come hoping and knowing that it is all about us? Or do we come with eager anticipation of knowing that we are here and we are called to serve others? The third truth that we see from this text is this. As believers in Christ, we are called to have an allegiance to Christ. We see this in verses 38 through 41. Now the disciples here, uh, the disciples here are still struggling with having a zeal for Jesus Christ. Now notice this, okay? We've now covered two truths, moving into the third truth, and there are still things the disciples do not get. So just understand that just as the disciples are growing and maturing in their faith and understanding of Jesus Christ, and so too should we continue with growing in our understanding of who Jesus is. But going back to our text in verses 38 through 41, notice that the disciples still have misplaced passions. Notice that they are still self-centered, and yes, they are still sinful. Now, the disciples are now about to learn that the kingdom of God is bigger than any of their personal experiences. It's like Sinclair Ferguson, when speaking of this particular section, says this, it is more important that the servants of God are devoted to Christ than they are to one of us. 
So we get to verse 38 through 40. We see the disciples have now come across a person casting out demons. And they didn't know who he was. He was not a part of the in crowd. In other words, he was not one of them. And so what did they do? They walked up to him and high-fived him and said, carry on, brother. No, that's not what they said at all. They desired to stop him. In fact, they went to Jesus and said, Jesus, there is a man casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus steps in in this moment and tells them to stop. In other words, Jesus turns on the disciples in this moment and tells them to stop what it is they are doing. And then he tells the twelve that anyone doing these things in his name does so by the power of God, which is a teaching that is affirmed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Now again, many people look at prosperity pastors and they use this passage and say, anything being done in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, clearly it is good and right. But notice that's not what Jesus says here. What he's saying is that things that are done in my name, eventually it will be revealed to them what the true glory of God is. You see, Jesus teaches that they should help him, that they should not try to restrain him, that they should help teach him. And so Jesus then, from that point, gives us a for us versus an against us statement, which clearly leaves no room for middle ground. He says that we are either with Christ or we are against Christ. So here in this text, we now see a nobody exalting somebody while the somebodies are worried about who is following a bunch of nobodies. In other words, the disciples were focused on the wrong thing. The disciples, again, were focused on the wrong person. Verse 41, Jesus then gives them a statement of assurance. After he convicts them from trying to push people away, he gives them a, a, a word of assurance. And listen to what he says here. He says to them in verse 41, I say to you, now, when he says, I say to you, Jesus is making an authoritative statement. And then he uses this phrase, whoever, which means all-inclusive. So now we know this is a person with authority, speaking from authority. And then the first thing he tells us is whoever. It's all-inclusive what he's about to say. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. In other words, there's that showing of allegiance to Jesus Christ, he then goes on to say, will by no means lose his reward. You see, Jesus Christ in this moment in verse 41 is telling the apostles that yes, even in the smallest and most humble acts, he will reward them for their work. Think about that for a moment, believers. Even in the moment where you find yourself swimming upstream and all of a sudden the path diverges and the crowd goes one way, but according to the will of God, according to the word of God, you are called to swim a different direction. Even in those moments, God is glorified. Even in those moments, 
He still sees us. So when you think you are standing alone for Jesus Christ, wherever it is, your workplace, your school, whatever that looks like for you, you do not stand alone. God sees you. And he will be made much of in that moment. You see, here's the reality from these verses. Service to others not only frees us, but it helps to get our eyes off of ourselves and ultimately onto others who need the same Jesus Christ that we need. You see, missions and serving others helps to eat away and destroy our sin of selfishness. So may we today uh, declare our allegiance to Jesus Christ in the faithful way we serve others. This brings us to our fourth and final truth this morning. The final truth we need to understand and find in greatness is we need to have a fear, a healthy fear and understanding of hell. Okay? Now pay attention to this. This is verses 42 through 50. Now I know many of us would ask this morning, what on earth, what in the kingdom of God does a fear of hell have to do with finding the path to greatness? Well, what we're about to see is in these nine verses put put, put front and center the cost and the serious nature of discipleship. So what's going to happen is Jesus in this passage puts together the strongest possible view of both judgment and hell and he tells us two things one it is real and two it lasts forever so in this context this passage is to serve as both a warning and a motivation to follow Jesus Christ both in devotion and in discipleship we see in verse 42 the story of the great millstone now here is the hinge verse that brings us uh, brings to a close the themes that are found in verses 35 through 41 now notice Jesus uses this phrase little ones in verse 42 now many people have read this passage and interpreted little ones to mean children or small children. But the reality is that is not what is being referenced here in this passage when you look at it in its original language. Rather, what little ones is referring to is it's referring to all of those of all ages who follow Jesus Christ. You see, in this passage, we learn that if we cause a a disciple to stumble, then it would be better for us to wear shoes made of cement and then to be tossed into the bottom of the ocean. So what Jesus is doing in verse 42 here is he is still speaking to the sin of pride. If we do not take down the sin of pride in our lives, then it will not only bring ruin to us, but it will also become a stumbling block to those who are around us that we may lead astray. You see, here's the reality of sin that no one wants to address. Too often times people have said, well, this sin, this is my own issue. This sin, this is my own personal struggle. In fact, I heard someone say one time, yes, I have sin in my life, and yes, I'm okay with it, because that sin only affects me. 
The reality is this, according to verse 42. Your sin not only affects you, but it affects your entire family. Your sin not only affects you, but it affects your relationships. Your sin not only affects you, but it affects your church membership. Your sin not only affects you, but it affects all the people who are in your life. Eventually, your sin will come to light. And it will destroy you. And it will ruin the relationships around you. Verses 43 through 48. Now we get this story of self Mutilation. Now, Jesus here launches into three powerful hyperboles to warn us against the dangers of sin. Now, yes, I did say that these are hyperboles. Um, they are not to be taken literally. Why? Because the Bible actually forbids bodily mutilation. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, 1 Kings 18, verse 28, and Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. However, even though self-mutilation is forbidden, this does not diminish or negate the seriousness and severity in what Jesus is trying to say. You see, Jesus here uses the eyes, the hands, and the feet as examples because they are all inclusive to what it is that we see, what it is that we do, and where it is that we go. So as important as they are, Jesus is saying it is better to lose them than to let them prevent you from entering eternal life and entering into the kingdom of God. You see, evil actions come from a heart that rejoices in sin. Now, the Lord here is not advocating for a literal self-maiming of one's body. Rather, he is calling for a ruthless attack and moral self-denial of our sin and our pride. In other words, like what John Stott says, he says Jesus here is teaching a mortification of sin that will lead to the path of holiness. It's kind of like the phrase that we hear. Either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what John Stott teaches us on the mortification of sin. Now, Jesus is not done here. Jesus, in fact, at this point, has now said more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Now, some scholars, unfortunately today, have argued that hell is not what we think it is. Now, again, I'm not about to launch into a hellfire brimstone message, but what I do want us to understand is we need to have a healthy observation and a healthy understanding of what hell is. In fact, it wasn't that long ago, there was a uh, popular, culturally popular theologian who got on and tried to convince the world that hell was actually more of a trash heap type place that acted more as a purgatory that you would then go to, that you would then figure out, oh, Jesus is king of kings, and then you would change your mind. The problem with that thought is there is no scripture to back up those words. In fact, I want to present to you today that hell is completely different than what this scholar described. In fact, in the New Testament, it's a place of eschatological punishment according to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 12. In fact, the Greek word Gehenna or Gehenna comes from the Hebrew Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom that we see in 2 Chronicles 
chapter 28. Hell was also the place where Manasseh offered child sacrifices to the pagan god Melech, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. This was a place declared unclean by Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23. This was a place that became the place to burn trash or to dispose of corpses, according to Isaiah chapter 66 and Jeremiah 31. It was also a place where prophets proclaimed oracles of doom upon it, and it was a place of unquenchable fire, according to Matthew chapter 3 and Mark chapter 5, or excuse me, Mark chapter 9. It was also a place that uh, possessed the lake of fire and the lake of, uh, excuse me, the lake of fire and brimstone, according to Revelation chapter 20. This is a place known as the outer darkness, according to Matthew 8, Matthew 22, and Matthew 25. It's a place of eternal punishment, according to Matthew chapter 25. Now, here's the question for me today, is this, why all the references? Because here's the truth. Hell is not a place of purgatory. This is a place of final judgment where those who do not believe will find themselves apart from the presence of God. This is a place where the wrath of God is being poured out and only God has the power to cast both body and soul into this place. In other words, unpopular to society, Satan is not in control of hell. God is. It is a place where the wrath of God is poured out. A place where God is still in control, but it is a place that is apart from the glory and the presence of God that radiates in his kingdom. You see, this is serious business when it comes to hell and the conversations we have about it. But here's the truth. Our goal is not to scare people from hell. Our goal is to point people to a better way. Our goal is to point people to a better hope. Our goal is to point people to an eternity that can be found in the relationship that we can share with Jesus Christ and an eternity that we can have with him in the kingdom of God. In other words, like my dear mentor said to me in seminary, Roy Fish, he said, our goal as pastors, our goal as elders, our goal as deacons, our goal as teachers, our goal as leaders, in fact, our goal as believers in the church, our goal is to stand with our backs to the gates of hell proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that people will not enter those gates and will turn to Christ and the rewards that are offered with being with him for eternity in the kingdom of God. That is our goal. We get to verse 49 through 50. And notice here Jesus closes by affirming that everyone will be salted with fire. Now pay attention to this because for the unbeliever, yes, you will be salted with fire too. But for the unbeliever, this will be the perpetual fires of judgment that you are being salted with. However... For the believer, for the disciple of Jesus Christ, this will be the persevering and refining fires of trials and sufferings that mark the road to true greatness that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You see, Jesus had a lot to say 
about the path to greatness. Clearly, this was a path that was not man-made. Clearly, this was a path that could only be found in following Jesus, Jesus Christ. So when we follow Christ, when we are obedient to his will, when we serve others, when we declare our allegiance to him, then we will begin to understand that there is an eternity at stake. And that is the greatness we are called to. Not for our own name or our own recognition, but making much of his name for his will according to his glory. You see, following Christ is not about knowing who will be the greatest. Rather, it's a call to be humble. It's a call to avoid stumbling and avoid causing others to stumble. It's not a call to position or rank or status, but a call to serve, support, care, and love one another for the glory of God. My prayer is that our heart's desire would be to seek the greatness of what it is that God has called us to by following the will and the path of Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. God has set the path. Jesus Christ has laid out the course. And so the question is this, will we follow? At this time, I'm going to ask Corey and the praise team to come back up and join us. And while they're coming up, we're going to spend a few moments in prayer. And there's going to be a few moments of silence. It's going to be an awkward silence. I'm going to go ahead and admit it to you. But let's take a few moments and let's pause and reflect upon the path that Christ has us on. Is it one that's leading to righteousness for him? One that's leading to greatness to his name? Or is it one that's self-serving? One that's all about us? One that is a path that we need to get off and get back on and right with him. Let's just take a moment, pray silently. I'll pray aloud for us, and then we'll close out our time together. Let's pray.